Hey everyone, uh, David here. So it's been a rough week. Um, we recorded this episode at the beginning of the month, and obviously a lot has happened since then. The murder of 11 Jews at the Tree of Life or La Simcha Synagogue in Pittsburgh, and the murder of two black people at a grocery store near the First Baptist Church of Jeffersontown in Kentucky. Our, our hearts go out to the families and the friends of all those killed. And it's been really inspiring to see the responses of the attack on the synagogue consistently reaffirm Jewish solidarity with other groups who are also under attack by white supremacy. And so in that spirit, before we start the show, I'm going to read the names of those who were killed at the Tree of Life or La Simcha synagogue alongside the names of those killed in Kentucky and also others who were killed by white supremacist violence this past week, um, specifically a Honduran man who was killed by Mexican police while crossing the border as part of a migrant caravan, and three children who were killed by IDF airstrikes in Gaza. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Younger, Vicki Lee Jones, Morris Stollard, Henry Diaz, Khaled Bassam Saeed, Abdul Hamid Abu Zahir, and Mohammed Ibrahim Al Satari. So, on that note, we're going to play this episode that we recorded a few weeks ago. It has a bit of a different tone, uh, but, but I hope you enjoy. I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast that is on the vanguard of the war against Christmas. Oh yeah, I forgot that we were doing that. It is coming ever so soon. Yeah, so uh, for people who haven't listened to the show consistently for several years, we had a, an early episode focused on what we described as the war on Christmas. So if you are a fan of participating in the war on Christmas, I guess what, you'll receive your Trafe podcast activation kit shortly? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which basically consists of tweeting, I think. So yeah, tweet hashtag war on Christmas. Um, so Sam. Yes, David. What do we do on Trafe podcast? If people want to know what Trafe podcast is, they can listen to any of the previous 40 full episodes or probably 40 to 50 shorts. But I will say that one thing we do on the show is uh, keep an eye on the Jewish media landscape. That's true. Thank you for answering your own question. <laughs> but I bring it up because recently we contributed to a new issue of one of our favorite Jewish life publications called Doikite. What's the title of this, this issue? The fourth issue is titled, uh, We Will Outlive Them. And uh, although I'm using the fact that we contributed as a segue here, it's probably the least important part of this zine. I would just highly recommend if you haven't heard about Doikite before, uh, trying to get the old issues and, and definitely uh, pick up the new one. But, uh, but seeing as I sort of uh, snuck in an advanced shkoyach here, Sam, I feel like I should probably give you an opportunity to do the same. 
Um, so is there anything that uh, you want to point people's attention toward? I just wanted to give a shkoyach to Nyla Burton, who wrote a piece that was published in the foreword called Stop Weaponizing Louis Farrakhan Against Black Jews. Go check it out. So moving away from things completely unrelated to today's episode, mm-hmm. how familiar are you with apologies? I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most familiar, I'd say somewhere between 7 and 8, probably. Okay, well, that's a little lower than I expected, so I'll just refresh your... <laughs> like, you know, the other day we were going to hang out, and I was a little late. Correct. So I, I told you I was sorry. Yes. And then today we were meeting up in the studio. I was a little bit early, because I wanted to show you that, uh, you know, I was going to change how I was approaching the whole situation. And unfortunately, I was late today. <laughs> it's all balancing out. <laughs> so now that we've defined that important term... Mm-hmm. Do you have any other apology-related questions? Are there sometimes apologies that people mean and maybe sometimes apologies that people don't mean? Well, it's funny you should ask because recently the Prime Minister of Canada announced that he was going to be making a formal apology to the Jewish community in Canada for turning away the MS St. Louis, which is a boat of Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis back in 1939. Yeah, basically, young Justin Trudeau and his and his government are going to be rolling out an apology about a week after the show comes out. And David and I wanted to kind of preempt some of the conversations that are likely going to take place. Has led us to wanting to talk about some of the myths around the Jewish immigrant experience that are very strong, at least in the Jewish communities that we both grew up in. Yeah, I mean, the, the big one is that for many Eastern European Jews living in North America, it's this idea that our parents or our grandparents or, or our family members kind of did immigration the right way. And that's often juxtaposed against many other immigrant communities. Yeah, so on the show today, we have two interviews. The first is with Syed Hassan, who's a longtime migrant justice organizer based in Toronto, who's currently working with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. And to talk about the American context, we interviewed Libby Garland, who's the author of a book called After They Close the Gates, Jewish Illegal Immigration to the United States Between 1921 and 1965. So without further ado, here's your episode of Trey for the 23rd of Cheshvan 5779. Uh, my name is Sayed Hassan and I organize with migrant and undocumented people here in Toronto as well as supporting indigenous struggles for self-determination and I coordinate a national immigrant rights body. Uh, well, Hassan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So we invited you on, uh, well, for multiple reasons, but the primary one is that we wanted to talk about the Canadian government's upcoming apology for turning away the MS St. Louis uh, back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting that they're also apologizing for the government's entire none-is-too-many immigration policy toward Jews in, in the 30s and 40s. And, mm-hmm. and so before we get into talking about the apology and, and the present moment, I was wondering if you could just start by maybe explaining what the None Is Too Many regime was and, and where it came from. So the None Is Too Many is a statement that was made by an immigration official early in the 30s when asked, you know, how many Jews should be coming to the country. Uh, and um, his response was, none is too many. And it's become um, descriptor for how the Canadian government excluded 
Jews from the country at a time when the genocide was being organized by the Germans, as well as across Europe, reducing the number of migrants to be able to come from there as part of a kind of a broader nationalist right-wing agenda in the country. And so the the regime of excluding Jews during the 30s and 40s, um, can you maybe talk about how that compared to earlier approaches to migration? Like, did it fit into a similar pattern or was it something that was uh, unique at the time? You know, decades before that, we had the Kumagata Maru, you know, a ship that was coming from India in 1914 and was uh, turned away from Canadian shores. Ships could only land in Canada if they'd been traveling continuously, thus barring migration from, from India. This is a ship that stayed off the coast of BC for many weeks. People were denied basic food, and that ship was returned where many of the people aboard the ship were actually murdered by the British government, the colonizing British government of India. So um, prior to that, we have had the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was a specific denial of status to Chinese railroad workers and their families. The exclusion of particular constituencies of people on ethno grounds, ethno-nationalist grounds, has long remained and to date remains the primary organizing principle of the Canadian immigration system. And and so by the 1950s, Canada starts accepting a higher rate of European Jews. Mm-hmm. Why were these European Jews and, and other European non-Jews led in during this time? So so what, what shifts after the war? Well, I think a number of things, right? So Canadian immigration policy has been a series of exclusions, and then in, within it, a series of inclusions which are about the expansion of whiteness. And so there was a time when there weren't Irish folks being allowed into the country, Italians not being allowed into the country, you know, Portuguese migrants not being allowed into the country. So every decade or generation, there's kind of an expansion of whiteness and who can be included into the country. And that was in part what happened in the 50s, where we're seeing post-World War II, the shift in the Western imagination about its own role in the furtherance of the Holocaust in trying to sort of recover from it by changing immigration policies in some places in certain countries. And to bring this conversation to the present, uh, starting with Mm -hmm. the Harper government, in the last Mm -hmm. 10 or 20 years, there's been a tremendous overhaul of the immigration policy in Canada. For American listeners and and for people who are a bit younger, can you talk about what happens during this period that kind of leads us into the present? I think what's important is to possibly start in the 60s. So it's important to note that until the mid-60s, Canada had an official whites-only immigration policy. That's not very long ago. That's in a lot of people's lifetimes. Uh, And the only people who could come to the country who were not whites were people who were citizens of the former British colonies. So there were folks, of course, from India, some from Hong Kong, etc. And what follows after the 60s, the shift away from the whites-only immigration policy is something called the Multiculturalism Act. The Multiculturalism Act in Canada is a direct response to massive anti-racist organizing that's taking place in part a response actually to the Human Rights Declaration um, that has come out of the UN in response to the Holocaust. So immigration rights movements, particularly in Canada, are calling for changes. And what we see is this creation of the Multiculturalism Act 
and the end of the white Sunni immigration policy to try and respond in part to the pressure, but also to not do the full changes. Because what happens, as we know, is when we fight to change policies and to get justice, the people in front of us, the oppressors, give us a little bit, but they also manage to bring back what they had, but now with a new face. So at the same time, they created the family reunification program. Many critics have argued that the purpose of creating the family reunification program was to maintain Canada's largely white identity. The hope was citizens who are white would bring families into the country so that immigrants of color uh, would not be able to kind of surpass the white immigrants. But what we see is happening is that the wave of immigrants, of racialized immigrants that starts in the mid-60s, late 60s, early 70s, when these people are coming, they are then sponsoring their families and bringing them to, while most white people didn't. We end up with uh, what is an unintended reform, much increased numbers of racialized people in the country. And so the year after the creation of this end of the white zone immigration policy is created the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program, which is a temporary foreign workers program to come here to work here, but not to be able to live here permanently. Now, since this sort of so-called reforms away from whites only immigration over the last 50 years, the total number of temporary immigrants in the country has almost every year exceeded those of the permanent residents. And so what's happening under the Harper era has there's been a greater awareness of people on work permits, temporary foreign workers as they're called. And that was largely a result of kind of a wave of um, nationalist anti-immigrant and xenophobia that Harper's government was very happy to fan the flames off to build up their right-wing base. Now, in terms of what happened in other areas, so uh, under the Harper government, the, uh, many people have argued that over the last 10 years, Canada had de facto or none is too many approach to Roma refugees from Hungary who were facing um, immense amounts of state-sponsored uh, violence, but also, of course, from militias. Yet tens of thousands of Roma refugees were kicked out. The other thing to know about Canada is that Canada has been one of the world's great leaders on what's called interdiction. Interdiction is the process by which a government is able to stop the flow of refugees and migrants into the country by supporting armed intervention abroad. By and large, we never hear about, see about, know about the people who never make it here. The Canadian government gives tons of money and resources to the Sri Lankan government to essentially not even allow those ships to leave from those ports. You know, during the Hungary-Roma crisis, which was just three and a half, four years ago, the Canadian government actually put up billboards across Hungary saying, do not come to Canada, discouraging claimants from coming here. Similarly, with the border crosses from the United States, people might know this, but, you know, 20 plus thousand people who've walked across the U.S. border into Canada to claim refugee status uh, in the last two years. And uh, the Canadian government's response has been to go and meet with community leaders across the United States and trying to encourage them to discourage people from coming into Canada. So that's one of the smartest ways where exclusion happens. So imagine um, in the case of the SS St. Louis that it would never just have arrived there. Canada would have paid Germany to sink the ship before it arrived there. That kind of work is what Canada has really pioneered and goes around the world uh, lauding it. So what do you think are some of the similarities and, and, and I guess differences between the government's policies today and during the 30s? Like, how do you see that through line? 
there's many differences. So first and foremost, as I said, the whites-only immigration policy in name has been removed and replaced by a point system where particularly younger people who can speak English and French and people who are willing to pay to study in Canada or have been educated are the ones that are being brought here to come here permanently. That was not the case in the 30s. You know, if people could get across here, they would largely be able to stay irrespective of their educational level. The other thing to know about Canada is that two-thirds of the people crossing into the country, I'm not talking about tourists, but people who are coming here to live and work here, are coming here to live and work temporarily, putting in huge sums of money into the economy, uh, being exploited at an incredibly large level, and then eventually being kicked out, right? And so there's a huge deportation industry, a huge incarceral system that actually was not in place in the 30s in the same way. So you have long-term detentions, people are being jailed for 10 years, 10 plus years, without trial or charges. The other thing is, I mean, there's a much, much, much more bureaucratic and technical process that is in place, which hides it's kind of like racist and capitalist and homophobic intentions behind many, many layers of bureaucratic and administrative process. So at the technical level, at the policy level, it's different because it's there are so many more methods to be kicked out or not be able to be allowed in or to get justice. Right? It's, a, it's an in, remarkably different system. But at the level of principles, what we know is that the purpose of the immigration system outside of economic commodities is to create the nation, right? To create the citizen. You have to have an outsider to create the insider. And that insider remains something that is largely controlled by a very particular imagination of whiteness or close to whiteness and capitalism. We also have uh, to locate the question of migration centrally in the question of decolonization. What kind of just migration is possible in a settler colony? Uh, It's not a very simple answer on any side of the conversation, whether framed in the reconciliation logic of the Trudeau government, which is nothing but the attempt to exterminate land rights, or even the progressive terms of decolonization, which are completely incapable of understanding what is actually going on in the on the ground, particularly in, uh, in indigenous reserves, in the way that questions of migration and sovereignty and self-determination are being interwoven. So I would say that I don't know what was happening in the 30s, but that is actually a really critical question here, but largely for many people, impossible to engage with because who is doing the engaging? It isn't as if there is a representative body of migrants or indigenous people that could meet to sort of like uh, work it out, for example. That's something we need to contend with. And so this sort of brings us back to the question of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, pending apology, formal apology for the mm-hmm. none is too many regime. So in this context, you know, where where the government is deporting people left and right to very perilous situations, often to their deaths, I'm sort of curious what your feelings are about this apology coming at this moment in Canada's sort of immigration history. I mean, what's interesting is the Harper government actually apologized for the Kumangata Maru incident a few years ago. So there's kind of this habit of asking for forgiveness for the past. Part of the notion of asking for forgiveness is to say, we are not the same. We've changed. We've become something different, seemingly something better. I have no doubt that in, you know, whatever, 100 years from now, 
another government was going to be apologizing for what is happening today. Well, let's see what climate catastrophe does to us. But so this process of acting as if, you know, we are so-called modern, civilized from the future is very central to the Canadian imagination. It's rebirth of itself as a progressive place, as a multicultural place, as an anti-racist place, you know, with this so-called feminist prime minister. That's the whole purpose. This is just a way to separate the current policy from the past, uh, where what we need to do is actually to draw the lines of connection and show the specific ways in which things have actually gotten worse, perhaps for different constituencies, perhaps for the same. And only then can we actually have accountability and justice. So this is just another scam, clearly organized in the lead up to the next federal election as a way to win support within Jewish communities and their allies. And I, you know, I strongly, strongly hope that progressive, radical, anti-racist, pro-immigrant rights Jews get together and put out statements, do demonstrations, speak to their family members who were impacted by that moment, educate them on what the current reality is because the myth is so strong, uh, and to just take very, very strong action to not allow this new form of whitewashing to grab hold because history is always written by the victors. But if we don't even act now, we're essentially selling out our own ancestors. I mean, when the Komagata Maru apology was, was issued, we convened a letter by hundreds and hundreds of South Asians from various walks of life and, and used them as discussion points, you know, in our own communities to talk about what the current reality was, even if someone's well off, but to understand that we are not all collectively well off in the necessity of organizing for transformation for everyone. So before we let you go, um, what's making you feel hopeful right now? Hmm. Well, I absolutely strongly believe that global transformation and in fact of global revolution is always on the horizon that there is the possibility to completely transform our social, economic, and political systems towards collectivized good, towards the valuing of human life and dignity or profit, away from the exploitation and greed of the capitalist system. And I think that there are constantly whispers and roars of these coming from one place or another. The fact that 4,000 Hondurans are marching towards the U.S. border right now, the fact that tens of thousands of people have marched across the Canadian-U.S. border, deciding that borders do not matter, literally insisting no one is illegal, literally saying that we will not allow this to happen in the masses, tells us that deep in the ground, everyday regular people know what injustice is and will act collectively to fight back against it. That gives us hope. I think that gives us direction. That tells us where to turn and where to look for and where to find solace and where to find leadership. Uh, we are entering into a moment where we have to connect across all struggles because, yet again, the future of our existence is at stake. And I don't necessarily mean this in a fear-mongering way, but now is the time to say, okay, we have to set aside petty differences, we have to set aside egos, we have to set aside territorialism, we have to set aside even the notion of issue-based work and start talking about what would it take to build movements of millions, and not just here, but around the world, and then to connect them against the very, very few people who hold 
a lot of the power and most of the money whose only interest is their continued enrichment. Well, Hassan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. It's Avi from Baltimore. I just wanted to send a bracha to all the Trafe listeners out there. May you all increase the light and color and joy in the world. I don't mean this in an empty platitude kind of way, like they give it commencements, but as an artist, I really believe we can make the world a more vibrant uh, place. I also wanted to give a shkoyach to Trader Joe's challah rolls, which are pretty tasty, and an anti-shkoyach to my toaster oven, which burnt one of my challah rolls to a lump of pure carbon yesterday, which was upsetting and felt like a personal attack. In closing, I wanted to give a shkoyach to Rabbi Ariana Katz of Baltimore for being a really great rabbi and doing really great work here. Okay, the out. Till next time. My name is Libby Garland. I'm a historian by trade, and I teach at Kingsborough Community College in Brooklyn, New York, at the City University of New York. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we, we have you on to talk about your book, and uh, we have a lot of questions about the book. But before we get to the book, I wanted to, I wanted to ask something that I heard you mention in another interview that you did where you mentioned that you used to do walking tours of the Lower East Side of New York for Jewish groups. I think you said it was back in grad school. Mm-hmm. And, and something that you said was that you'd hear folks talking about their family's immigration stories when you were doing these tours. And, and I was curious what these conversations were like that you would overhear. Right. Um, so I did do walking tours for a really cool small company called Big Onion Walking Tours, which mostly at least when I was working with them in the late 90s, early 2000s, mostly employs historians working on their doctorates like me, so people who you know needed to make rent and had some historical expertise. So one of the most popular walking tours that I did was of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And although the walking tours weren't specifically for Jewish groups, the Lower East Side of Manhattan it was, is a kind of pilgrimage site for lots of Jews who have family histories that connect them to that place. People were really interested in connecting with this sort of mythical immigrant past of the neighborhood, and that sometimes led them to talk about present-day immigration in sort of, to me, really troubling ways. So people would make these comparisons between the experiences of their 
grandparents or great aunts and uncles who might have come through that neighborhood or lived in that neighborhood as new immigrants and current day immigrants and often would say things to the effect of, you know, my grandparents did it right and these immigrants today are gaming the system. You know, my grandparents or parents or great aunts and uncles worked really hard and they worked their way up and people today are they're just looking for handouts or people today don't work as hard. And sometimes they would say that also sort of in the presence of, I mean, it continues to be a really immigrant neighborhood. So they might be standing on a street corner and around them would be all sorts of hustle and bustle and work activity. And yet they would talk about immigrants of the present in ways that I found pretty startling. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I was one of those people who flocked to that area to, <laughs> uh-huh. to, to go to some of the sites and... I've been on two tours now and was su- very surprised at both experiences. There was almost no mention of the contemporary reality. There was no mention of immigration in America right now. So it's kind of the flip side of your experience where it w- I was just so surprised that you could spend two hours walking around and talk about the, the plight of different communities and not in any way situated in the present. I think you're certainly right. That was also the the other possibility was that people could be walking around this neighborhood that for them was only about some kind of mythical history and the stories that they had heard and not so much about the present realities of the place, even though I think as tour guides, a lot of us were pretty committed to trying to make those connections. Yeah. And, and in terms of that mythical history, you know, one of, one of the things that your book does is really shatter, I think, the myths that a lot of people have constructed about what Jewish immigration to the United States has actually looked like. And so before before we go further in the conversation, we should probably establish some uh, factual groundwork for, for listeners. You know, the period that your book covers starts in 1921, uh, right uh-huh. after the United States introduced the first Quota Act. And uh, can you talk a bit about what the Quota Acts were? So the Quota Acts of 1921 and 1924 were these laws that restricted immigration really dramatically in unprecedented ways that came out of the upsurge of nativism and nationalism that characterized American culture in the era of World War I. Um, They were designed to limit and to a certain extent to stop the immigration of people who were deemed by lawmakers and much of the American public to be dangerous to the nation's political well-being, to its social well-being, to its cultural well-being, to its economic well-being, to its biological well-being. And the people really targeted by those laws kind of fell into a couple categories. One really important category was Asian immigration, which in that 1924 law was really blocked across the board and made permanent an older ban on Asian migration that had been in place earlier. And the other groups really targeted by these laws were groups of immigrants who had been coming in great numbers in the early part of the 20th century from Central Europe and from Eastern Europe. So people from the Russian Empire, including Jews and others, people from Austria-Hungary. And the the sort of model of the law vis-a-vis those folks was nation-based quotas that would limit how many people from those places believed to be undesirable could come to the United States. 
And when when did you first learn about Ashkenazi Jewish migration continuing uh, during this time in defiance of the quotas? Right. So when I kind of got into this field, something that people knew about immigration during this time period was that the laws had done a really good job of cutting it off. People talked about the gates being closed after 1924. So, for example, on those walking tours that I used to do, people I would be leading around on tours might say, well, you know, of course, my relatives came in before the gates were closed. They came in in 1920, and then after the gates were closed, the rest of my family couldn't come in. So it's this kind of narrative that both in the world of scholarship and in the world of popular memory remain very strong. So I very much had that narrative in mind and thus was not looking for stories about immigration in this time period. And in fact, I had embarked on this completely different project for my doctoral thesis. And that was a project that probably would have been pretty boring um, <laughs> as a, you know, so it's a good thing that I didn't end up doing it. But that project would have been about the work of Jewish aid organizations in the time period between the two world wars. And so that work took me to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and to Jewish organizational archives in places like New York City, looking for what kinds of work those groups were doing in that interwar period. And somewhat to my surprise, because I knew the narrative about the gates being closed and immigration being stopped in that period after the 1924 law, I kept stumbling onto what I thought were these really compelling stories about people who were getting caught trying to sneak into the country despite the laws. And at some point, the really obvious notion dawned on me that just because you have a law that forbids something doesn't mean that that thing actually stops happening, which is super obvious, but hadn't quite occurred to me until I actually found myself staring at those stories in the archives. And it seems that before your book was published, the history of underground Ashkenazi Jewish immigration hadn't really been examined in academia. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on, on why that's the case? I mean, I think a couple of things made for that lack of attention to the story. One is that the data produced by the U.S. government itself was, by definition, not able to track people who were coming in illicitly, so especially those who were successful. So people who wanted to stay under the radar succeeded in staying under the radar. So if you would look at graphs showing the numbers of people entering, right, just you can just see those, that graph kind of go off a cliff after 1924. The other thing, though, is that like the folks walking around on the Lower East Side, historians of immigrant communities also understandably were wanting to write kind of positive stories. There was a tension between that desire to sort of write these really positive community histories on the one hand and tell stories of or to look for stories of law-breaking and kind of illicit activity on the other. I don't see that history as dirty laundry in any way, shape, or form, right? I see this as a history of people who were doing their best to make choices in a world that was restricting their ability to get where they needed to go. But I think that that investment in a good history also shaped the historiography as well and maybe sort of 
made scholars sort of less likely to ask that question. And the last thing I would just throw in there is that I think that, like all scholars, I was sort of writing in a moment where other people were asking questions that led me to ask questions, like how border guarding really worked or what the idea of illegal vis-a-vis migration or immigration really means. So there was also sort of a lot of scholarship that was pushing me in the direction of asking the questions once I found those sources. And, and that tension that you're talking about in terms of the historiography, it seemed like that tension was present within the process of trying to figure out how to respond to the quota laws by American Jewish organizations. You know, to bypass a lot of the quota restrictions, European Jews would often travel to Mexico by ship, and then they'd cross on land from there into the United States. And so this person named Martin Zelanka, am I, am I pronouncing the name right? Um, that's how I would say it. I don't know how his family said it. It's funny to only learn the name by reading it through the book, um, but <laughs> but um, he started being approached for help by these migrants, and he himself was actually a migrant from Germany. Can you maybe just talk a bit about how he responded? So Martin Zulanka, as you say, was a rabbi at a reform synagogue in El Paso, so right on the border with Mexico. Ciudad Juarez is right across the border. And he kind of found himself suddenly at the epicenter of, or one of the epicenters of this new kind of illicit migration of European Jews. And he was kind of caught by surprise by this. So some people kind of apparently tried to get in, having had news of the impending law and not able to get all their papers in order, came via Mexico and came over the southern border of the United States and showed up in his study in his synagogue and asked him for help. And he was taken aback and didn't really know what to do. They are refugees from a place that is really hellish, and that's how he described it. And on the other hand, they are violating U.S. law. And he, like his counterparts in Jewish organizations in other parts of the country, was really, really, really concerned about how it would look if the established Jewish community, if leaders in the established Jewish community condoned the violation of U.S. law. So he ultimately decided that he couldn't condone illegal crossing of the U.S. border by Jews. And so much like leaders elsewhere, he decided that what he was going to do was visit folks in jail and ask for better conditions, or he would ask the authorities to let them return to Mexico voluntarily rather than be, for example, deported to Poland if they had been caught. But he certainly wouldn't do something like set up an underground railroad or some kind of sanctuary or condone doing that. And in fact, as the years went on and the traffic of European Jews trying to come over the Mexico-U.S. border increased, one of the things that Zilanka tried to do in response to that was to set up a center in Mexico that would both help Jews who arrived in Mexico stay in Mexico and make their home there and also convince them not to even try entering the United States elite. Mm. So, for example, he got, there were some social workers, American Jewish social workers who would go meet incoming ships in Veracruz in Mexico and hand out flyers that said, don't believe somebody who says that they are going to help you get over the border into the United States. They're smugglers and you may be caught and you may be deported and so on. 
I'm curious how much sway that thinking had in the institutional response at that time. Like, how representative was his approach? I think it was really representative. There were certainly plenty of individual Jews who, for example, family members of people who were coming to the United States or staying in the United States in violation of U.S. law, of course, were often stepping up to support them and shelter them, right? So for the people who saw themselves as representatives of the broader community, whether they were part of a religious community or part of a secular group, um, however much they disagreed with the law and they advocated for the abolition of the quota law for decades, they also did not see themselves or see Jews in the United States in general as being in a secure enough position to endorse law-breaking. I think there was a kind of anxiety that was behind this real insistence on being law-abiding, on representing Jews as being generally law-abiding, and kind of coming down on the side of law. So I saw kind of similar pronouncements in the papers of the National Council of Jewish Women or, or elsewhere. Something I was curious about while reading the book was if you came across any sources or information about Jewish migrants coming from outside of Europe at this time to the United States and, and how they were treated by this system. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I wasn't really encountering that many stories in the sources that I was looking at. Maybe if I had hunted for them a little bit, I would have encountered some of them. I don't know that anyone has tracked those stories about Jews from other parts of the world coming to the United States in that era. There's one historian who's done a really great job tracking the stories of Jews from the Ottoman Empire coming to Mexico during that time period, and that's Debbie Mays at the University of Michigan. That's a kind of really interesting and related story, and she talks a lot about sort of the ways that Jews from the Ottoman Empire were able to adopt different identities as needed in order to come to Mexico. And some of the people who she tracks also come to or through the United States. So that's a kind of interesting hmm. avenue. But I didn't actually find that many sources that could possibly be a future project. What's just astonishing to me is when I was reading the book, you know, you, you'd be talking about how regularly on the cover of like the Jewish Daily Forward, there'd be stories of raids of workplaces and then just the fabric of Jewish daily life, uh, especially in New York City, this was just so present that people were here without status and coming over on the regular. So in your mind, how do we get from that to so soon after almost a complete erasure of, of that trajectory? For me, it was really interesting to discover when I first started presenting my work that the story that I was telling didn't necessarily come as a great surprise to some of the audiences I was speaking to. I remember the first time I presented my work at some scholarly conference or other, I was kind of worried that people would like throw tomatoes and tell me there was no way that this stuff could be true because it <laughs> seemed so counter to the official scholarly narrative and communal narrative that I had always heard. And instead what happened was that a bunch of people raised their hands and said, oh, yeah, I have a story like that in my family. And I found that as I kind of continued to present work and, you know, in both scholarly settings and in communal settings, usually there's something like that. Someone has a story about, like, oh, yeah, my grandfather stowed away on a ship or, you know, they have some story about 
unauthorized migration in their own family. And so the riddle kind of became exactly as you say, why is it that people so often had a story like this that they knew in their family? It wasn't a story that had been hidden necessarily, but that they didn't think of that story as connected to any kind of larger communal narrative of Mm. Jewish immigration history. I mean, I don't have one tidy answer for that. I think that it connects to a few things. I mean, I think one is that it connects to the fact that one of the jobs of historians is precisely to tell not just individual family histories, but communal histories, the sort of history of the collective, and that historians themselves had missed that tale of unauthorized migration as a piece of Jewish immigration history. And the Jewish community has had that investment in Jewish immigration history being a history of people who did something right. And again, I don't see unauthorized migration as doing something wrong at all, but that narrative of forebears who did something the right way has been a really powerful foundational myth for American Jewish communities, and thus a tale of people clashing with the law has not really been part of that. I do find these days in particular, in the kind of current political moment that we're in, two reactions to the story that I tell when I tell it. One is, I do sometimes encounter people who are offended at my efforts to write Jews into this longer history of what they see as illegal immigration or this history of unauthorized migration because they really feel like it must have been different, that Jews were somehow coming for better reasons or different (laughs) reasons or more compelling reasons, even if they crossed the border illegally, than people in the here and now. And so that's one reaction that makes me very sad. Um, But there's another reaction that I think is the much more common one that I've encountered, and of course people who come hear me talk are probably a self-selected crew, right? A lot of people really want some basis for solidarity with other immigrants, undocumented or not, sort of in this moment of these really intense attacks on immigrant communities in the United States. And so some people see that as a positive aspect of Jewish history and that that it sort of puts into perspective the choices and decisions that people who find themselves in violation of U.S. law, U.S. immigration law today, make and have made, right? And then it's sort of the basis for solidarity with those communities. And I find that really hopeful. Because, I mean, a lot of the parallels of, of the story that you tell in the book and today are, are just wild. I mean, after the second quota law was passed, you know, thousands of U.S. visas were instantly invalid. And Eastern European Jews were just stranded at ports across the continent. Could have been a few months ago in the news, right? And the post-World War One refugee crisis bears so many resemblances to what's happening today with the current global refugee crisis. And the consequences of looking away from this history, I think we're seeing in, you know, the, maybe the Stephen Millers or the Kushners of the world actually engineering the exclusion policies of today. Mm-hmm. The book took a really long time to research and write, and there was no moment from the early 2000s to the present where I would tell somebody what the topic was, you know, I'm writing about unauthorized migration, there was no moment at which people didn't say, wow, that's really topical, right? Like, in the days and weeks and months and years following 
September 11th, 2001, there were suddenly all these new questions being raised by lawmakers and in the public realm about immigrants. You know, should people from quote-unquote Arab and Muslim lands, should men from Arab and Muslim lands have to go register? Should they be subjected to surveillance and scrutiny and roundups and deportations? It happened that, you know, I was writing about laws that were being proposed in the 1930s to register aliens at the same moment that, you know, down the street from me, there were communities where men were being required to show up and register as supposedly dangerous aliens suddenly. I mean, I think your question about the current moment, I mean, there's many burning and painful questions about immigration policy right now. And one of them for me as a historian is how and whether these histories that we tell as historians of immigration can be a basis for fighting back against inhumane and unjust policies in the present. And so one of the hopes I have for this particular book, which is, of course, just one small piece of the larger history of immigration to this country, but one hope is that, yeah, it gives people a kind of a basis for solidarity. But another one is that I I hope that it puts that entire system into perspective. And so I think a lot of the, the Stephen Millers of the world or Jeff Sessions or others saying things like, if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation, right? There's a kind of sense in there that restricting immigration and guarding borders has always been an essential piece of having a nation. And that's not, in fact, true. It's a system that is relatively new and that was built up over time. And the history that I tell is sort of one piece of that. You see that system as it is coming into its own in the 1920s. It wasn't always there. Yeah, I mean, it really it did strike me reading the book how recent the idea is that governments need to limit or regulate people crossing the borders at all. Like you reference a period in which the border between the U.S. and Mexico wasn't even guarded. There was no one counting who was coming in and out. And in our current moment, it sort of like lifted the fog <laughs> that had been, you know, settled in from all this rhetoric that I think it was was really useful. Yeah, right. I mean, I think again the idea that you have to. Um, guard borders against migration or against illegal immigration, that was really an idea that was connected to that project of Chinese exclusion in the late 19th century. So for the last few decades of the 19th century, it was, and the first few decades of the 20th century, it was for the most part Chinese immigrants who the U.S. government was looking to stop coming over the borders of the United States. And then later, as those quota laws were passed, in addition, also European immigrants as well. And so the Border Patrol was a creature of the 1920s. It didn't get going until 1925, and it was invented as a response to that restriction of immigration that the U.S. put in place in the 1920s. Could you talk a little bit more about what some of the differences were between the concerns of government officials between folks coming from Europe and people coming from Asia? Yeah, that's a great question. So the project of Chinese exclusion and then later Asian exclusion were always much more sweeping and thoroughgoing than the law and rhetoric aimed at Europeans. Immigration control was really invented around Chinese exclusion, so this like explicitly racist project to target and ban the immigration of 
Chinese workers. And that had its roots partly in sort of an older tradition of Orientalist and racist way that the United States regarded China, but then also in specific tensions that grew out of specifically in California, but in the west of the United States, these sort of newly conquered lands that white settlers in particular really wanted to preserve for white people. And so Asian exclusion sort of always had this explicit racial basis that went farther, I think, than European exclusion. As much as Europeans faced prejudices, they were, for the most part, not barred from naturalization. So there were these um, lines that got drawn that really um, defined Asians as outsiders by refusing to grant Asians naturalization that were not drawn relative to Europeans. So in terms of that public perception of Jews uh, in the United States, you know, in the decades following the quota laws, the label of illegal immigrant or alien, as they were being called a lot in the press, this changed for European Jews in the United States in a way that it didn't seem to change for Mexicans. Can you talk about the trajectory of Jews who migrated this way versus other populations that did the same? So there's that one kind of story, which is about the ways that immigrants and the children of immigrants and the grandchildren of immigrants were sort of increasingly blending into this white America. And then there's a second story that's not about Europeans, but is really about the ways that immigration policy and ideas about illegal alienness, and I sort of hear that in quotes, right, were being connected to other folks and especially to Mexicans. And that whole idea of illegalness gets clipped to the figure of the Mexican rather than to Europeans. And the enforcement priorities of the U.S. government become to target Mexican undocumented immigrants rather than other groups, including Jews. And I also think that there's one additional piece of it that I was interested in in my book, too, was thinking about how taking the attention off of Jewish or European illegal alienness was also something that didn't just only happen passively, it was something that the Jewish community itself, in the case of the people I was looking at, worked toward. American Jewish organizations and leaders were pretty worried about the possibility of getting associated with this sort of new form of law-breaking and worked pretty hard to sever that association, making it really clear that Jewish organizations were not going to support violations of law. I think there are all other pieces of that puzzle that had to do with a kind of new mode of defining some immigrants as refugees. So after World War II, even though lots of the American public wasn't very excited about admitting refugees or displaced persons, as they were termed at the time, the nation ultimately did pass some legislation in that post-war era that admitted a number of refugees, and I think that also helped shift the categories into which Jewish immigrants fell in the public imagination. For everyone listening, I'd highly recommend reading the book if you haven't read the book. But Libby, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this. Thank you so much for having me. Put in your Uncle Moishe cassette, hop into the mosh pit. It's time for Shkoyach. 
Shkoyach. Shkoyach. Welcome to Shkoyach. Yeah, for all you Jewish memers out there, that header was a direct nod to you. Um, but getting right down to business, Sam. Brass tacks. Uh, what's your Shkoyach for today? Okay, so I have a double Shkoyach. Ah, uh, major macher. Do you know that I once had a shirt that said Macher on it? I did not. What happened to the shirt? I don't remember. But I think at one point in my more alternative days, I turned into a sleeveless shirt. Oh, I would I would love to wear this. I would really like to find that shirt, but I don't know where it is. So what what is your Shkoyach? So my Shkoyach starts in this room. Oh, okay. So maybe, maybe we could paint a little picture for people about where we are right now. An audio pastiche, yeah. perhaps? Yeah. Like, we're, uh, for example, right now I'm looking straight ahead. Uh, there's a giant mixing board in front of me. We're in a very small studio. It's a side studio at CKUT. It's a community radio station in downtown Montreal. It's pretty small. I'd say somewhere about eight or nine feet one way and maybe six or seven feet the other way the walls are painted peach there's a insulated foam sort of drilled into two of the walls i think you're missing the most important piece in this room that really brings it all together david it's the star wars poster (laughs) that for some reason is on the wall uh but but what is it about this room that relates to your square so it's the people in the room david me and you me and you, but more specifically you, because it'd be weird if I gave myself a square. <laughs> okay. So, David, you're getting the first square. Oh, wow. I have so many people to thank. <laughs> but why, why, why am I getting a square? You're getting the square because you've put me onto this other person whose name is also David. Uh, his last name is Gilbert. Oh, yeah, of course. And you've been kind of, I wouldn't say harassing me, but gently suggesting that I read <laughs> his work for several years. It's and true. I And I kind of put it off. Not for any reason other than just I got a lot of things going on. But I finally picked up a copy of Love and Struggle, which is his memoir. And I basically wasn't able to put it down for several days. It's so good. It's fantastic. The whole book is dog-eared. And it just feels like there's so much wisdom and insight in so many different parts of that book. Right. Okay. So so who is David Gilbert for people Uh, who don't know? I actually think you probably know more about him than I do, but for the rough overview, he's a he's a white anti-imperialist who's a political prisoner. He's been inside since I think the mid '80s, and and I always knew that his work was really important to you. And I just felt like his memoir, Love and Struggle, is is so rich with insight, um, humility, um, a willingness to to accept mistakes, to be open about things that he did wrong and also provides so much knowledge and insight for future generations. Um, I just was blown away by his by this book. Yeah, and actually the, the same publisher who put out David's memoir is uh, in January putting out, in collaboration with a publisher here in Montreal, is putting out a new book about Kwesi Balagoon, who is a black anarchist. He was a member of uh, the Black Liberation Army and was briefly cellmates with David. They were very close friends. And a lot of their story over the past several decades was very linked. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that book as well. So to wrap things up here, double shkoyach to both Davids, Zinman and Gilbert. <laughs> and I really suggest that people visit the World Wide Web and, and find his writings and get a copy of his book. Yeah, I got to surf that World Wide Web. <laughs> um, with that 90s internet reference out of the way mm-hmm. and my double shkoyach in the rearview mirror. David. That's me. What shkoyach do you have for us today? My square for today also goes to a book um, that I finished a few months ago. Nerd. And, <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I actually thought that I had given a square to this on the show before, but the book is called The Brown Plague. Uh, it's a reference to the rise of fascism uh, in Germany, and it's a book by Daniel Guérin. It documents two trips that he took from France to Germany right before and right after uh, the Nazis seized power. 
I feel like I've seen this fellow's books at the Anarchist Book Fair before. Yeah, so he's actually a very well-known and very important figure in uh, the last hundred years of radical left and specifically anarchist thought. Um, he's a very well-known queer activist in France. He did a lot of translating and writing about anarchist history and political theory. So, David, I'm assuming that there's a stark contrast between what Mr. Guérin experienced before the war and after the war? Well, yes and no. It, it, both of his accounts are, are fascinating to me. The story essentially is that a leftist newspaper paid him to do a bicycle tour across Germany because Germany was understood as, as having this very vibrant leftist character to it prior to Nazis taking power. And he's just biking across the country, staying in social centers and hanging out with other leftists, documenting a lot of the shifts going on within the country. Mm. When he went back, he was documenting the very early days of Nazi rule when they hadn't totally consolidated power. So, so David, like, what resonated with you in this book? Why, why is this book elevated to the level of Shkoyak? <laughs> so the, I'm, I'm giving it Shkoyak because it was just such a fascinating viewpoint of this period of time that, you know, both of us growing up in Jewish communities, we had such a robust Holocaust education that focuses on this period. But there are so many elements of what was happening during that period that I've never heard about, primarily because the people telling me about it were not queer anarchists that were touring on a bicycle. <laughs> and, Wait, David, you're saying your uh, Jewish teachers were not queer anarchists who bicycled? Yeah, I can confirm that is not correct. <laughs> what What else are you taking away from from the text? I think I think this book was really important for me to read to complement a lot of the Holocaust education I got growing up that was very important, but also focused on very particular elements of what it meant for Nazis to gain power and how, and the perspective of, you know, the communist movement in the country who were sort of like the first line of attack. It was very interesting to have that perspective. Mm. And one of the weaknesses of the book is the distance that he has from anything resembling anti-Jewish persecution, Oh wow! where it's barely mentioned in the book. And to the extent that it is, I wasn't really happy with, with how that played out. The book is much more focused on the Nazis' war with the communist movement. But the transformation of Germany from what it was before to what it was after is, is a very compelling narrative. And to be able to see this period through his eyes just felt like such a treat. So would highly recommend this book to anyone who uh, feels up to reading a description of Germany after the Nazis took power that doesn't mention Jews very often. Devoted Trafe listeners now have two books to read um, in the upcoming weeks. Well, actually three if they read uh, Libby Garland's book, which would highly recommend as well. All good things come in threes, David. Yeah, well, is that true? I don't know. Uh, if anyone does read all three books, let us know how your week goes. We'll aggregate the results. Well, that was your 41st episode of Trafe. How are you feeling, David? I mean, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty encouraged. I'm hopeful that maybe in the weeks and months to come, we'll see some uh, Jews in Canada talking uh, a little more critically maybe about this apology that Trudeau's offering. Yeah, and I hope for everyone listening, you're just taking care of yourself and, and trying to do good by the people around you. Um, one thing that we want to mention is that we're sort of diving into creating transcripts for a lot of old episodes. We're going through a bit slapdash on this and doing ones that people have expressed interest in. So if you, you have a special interest in any particular episode and having a transcript sooner rather than later, just send us an email at trafepodcast at gmail.com um, and we'll do our best to put that up in the, in the hierarchy of how we're doing this. 
As always, give us a positive review on iTunes. Or whatever rating you feel is appropriate. This is where we have very different ideological opinions. Feel no shame in your desire, listener. We are subscribed to some service that sends us an email every couple months with people's comments, and so we actually do see them, so... And if you feel like sharing any thoughts you have or, you know, experiences or recent feelings you've been sorting through with uh, Trafe Podcast listenership, just send us a voice memo. Make it about a minute or two. Start with your name, where you're calling from, and uh, we'll play it on a future show. Trafe Podcast is Sam, Bick, and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where where we record this podcast in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Gunnagahaga territory. Thanks to Sex Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode. And for all the people who helped make Trafe happen. Follow us on all the social medias. You got your Twitters, you got your Instagrams, you got your Facebooks. Send us comments, suggestions, hate mail, etc. to trafepodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next month. Pew pew!